Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and also what we'll do is we'll turn to page 938 in the back of your hymnals, page 938. We'll be reading only section 3 at first, and then during the message we'll read section 4 of chapter 30. First, let's look at what the Word of the Lord has for us this evening, coming from 1 Corinthians 5. Hear the Word of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Have you become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst? For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed, who has so committed this, so uh, as though I were present. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled. And I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean at all with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And then we'll read um, the top of page 938. This is chapter 30, section 3. Nine, page 938, chapter 30, section 3. Church censures are necessary for the reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren, for deterring of others from like offenses, for purging out of that leaven which might infect the whole lump, for vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel, and for preventing the wrath of God, which might justly fall upon the church, if they should suffer his covenant and the seals thereof 
to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. Let's pray together. Our blessed Lord, we ask for your blessing um, on this, your holy word, as we hear the preaching from 1 Corinthians 5. We ask that we would heed the words of Paul, that we would heed the words of Holy Scripture, that we would seek to have a church and that we would seek to honor and respect a church that practices one of the true marks of a biblical Bible-believing church, that of practicing church discipline. Help us to understand and believe and apply this, your holy word, to ourselves, to our lives, to our church. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Um, Some don't have a stomach for church discipline. What do I mean by that? They might be afraid to join a church that exercises church discipline. Or, if they are a member of the church, they might not want to serve on a session of a church that exercises church discipline. In other words, they might, they might be okay with being a member, but they, they might say, I don't want to be on the session because I might have to vote for someone to be suspended. Or I might have to vote for someone to be excommunicated and put out of the church. And I don't want that responsibility. I don't, I don't have the stomach for that. Well, um, Jude... 3 verse 3 says that all Christians are to contend earnestly for the faith which was once handed down to all the saints. That word contend, the Greek word for contend there is has at the root um, a meaning of fighting or struggling. And the root word really is, is agonizomai. Agonizomai. It's a word that if you hear it, it sounds like agony. Because that's where we get the word to agonize or to have agony, which is like severe struggle, even painful struggle. And some things in the church, like church discipline, can cause not only a session, but can cause each of you to have some suffering, some agony. There's grief involved in seeing someone put out of the church. And that, but that intense grief and suffering is an agony that is necessary according to God's word, according to these passages of Scripture. Um, Dr. Vadi Bakum, in multiple of his online messages and sermons that are recorded online, if you, if you haven't checked him out, you can go to YouTube and you could look up sermons from Dr. Vadi Bakum. But he, he says that there are many well-meaning Christians who have an, an 11th commandment. They, this is what they do in practice, namely. And the, their commandment is this, thou shalt be nice. Now, what do we mean by that? What, what does he mean by that? Well, um, somebody in the church is, is committing some wicked sin, but the session wants to be nice rather than disciplining them. Well, that is contrary to the Word of God because what they're doing is something that is opposed to the Word of the Lord, that is wrongly opposed and is contrary to God's Holy Word. Paul commanded Timothy to fight, for the, to fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Now, with combat, 
There's sometimes the spilling of blood. With combat, there's sometimes gruesome wounds on both sides of the battlefield. But church discipline is a necessary part of the gruesome fight that God calls us to. Section 3 says that church censures are necessary for the reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren. As we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, that there was a man guilty of incest, and Paul made a decision that to deliver such a one, that the church was to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He wasn't just given over to Satan to be condemned. There was opportunity for him to have salvation if he repented and turned in his sin. There was opportunity that they should have prayed for the reclaiming and gaining of that offending brethren who was excommunicated. Um, We're not going to look there, but in 2 Corinthians 2, there is an agreement among most scholars that the reclaiming and gaining of that offender happened because there's the mention of a man who was disciplined by the body and he had a true godly sorrow and they were to restore such a man in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 5 and following. But let's say a church doesn't exercise this proper discipline. If you have an offending brother or sister in the church and they continue to repeat the same sin over and over again, uh, if they die in unbelief and unrepentant sin, it's possible, even though they're in good standing with the church, they go to hell because they are continuing to commit heinous sin and wickedness and even taking the Lord's Supper as well. And that, is, that can happen by a session not doing their duty in disciplining such a person. Section 3 continues to teach that church discipline is necessary for deterring of others from the like offenses, for purging out that leaven which might infect the whole lump, for vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel. This language here is taken from 1 Corinthians 5. Now, let's look at that again. 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 6 through 8. Therefore, actually, we'll actually, uh, yeah, we'll start at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, if you've ever baked bread, in America we don't do unleavened bread, do we? We always put some leaven in there. We put some yeast in there. And we want that leaven to leaven the whole lump. Because if you don't want to bake bread unless it's fully leavened, otherwise it's going to be flat. But here, this is, this is talking about the Passover and Jesus Christ as the Passover 
who was sacrificed. And the illustration here is that Paul is giving is that you don't want this particular bread, the bread of the church, to be leavened. You want the church to be like unleavened bread, according to the end of verse 8. He wants us to be like the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's the goal at the end of verse 8. I want us to look at a particular church that is a negative example that was a church where the leaven of wickedness and sexual immorality did spread. And it didn't seem to spread in the church, in the Corinthian church, in this way from this incestuous man. But there is an example, and uh, we want to keep our place in 1 Corinthians 5, but we want to look at Revelation 2. Let's look at Revelation 2. 18 through 23. A church in Thyatira. Look at verse 18, chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished Bronze says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. So there were many in this congregation that were faithful. But look at verse 20 and following. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Okay, before we continue reading, notice that he is against them because they tolerated this woman Jezebel. They tolerated her. What What should they have done instead? They should have warned her, and if she didn't, Listen, they should have put her out of the church along with those who did not repent. Verse 21, look at verse 21. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I give to each one of you according to your deeds. Jesus, meek and mild, here in this text in Revelation chapter 2. This is a stern warning, but if the church... If the church had exercised discipline upon this woman and those who committed immorality, then it would not have had to go so far. Uh, How do we know that there was leaven spreading in this particular um, case? Because it wasn't just the act of one woman. It was one woman leading others astray. She was leading the bondservants of Jesus to commit acts of sexual immorality with her and to eat things sacrificed to idols. 
Um, we go on and we read in section three where it says the purpose of church discipline is for vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel. These are two things that go hand in hand. Uh, notoriously wicked, unrepentant people can negatively affect the witness of a church, especially a church where there is some leaven acting as an influence of others to sin. Um, let's just pretend uh, my daughter Hannah is going to go to a, a nearby town. She's going to go to college at, in, in Shreveport or someplace like that. And there is a, there is a reformed church there. But we hear news that there's some immorality going on and that some people are influencing others to commit immorality. Would we send our daughter there? If you were looking for a new church, would you want to go there? Would you ever trust yourself or anyone to go and visit that church if they were openly, notoriously committing sexual immorality? And the answer is no, because they're allowing this to go on within the church, or maybe a a homosexual uh, minister or elder or a, a homosexual preacher, as in some other churches, that they're allowing that stuff. The notorious wickedness of those churches, it is something that doesn't vindicate the honor of Christ. It drags the honor of Christ through the mud, through the filth, and it affects the profession of the, of the gospel negatively. So the notoriously wicked, unrepentant person should be put out to vindicate the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel. Section 3 closes by saying that church discipline is necessary for preventing the wrath of God, which might justly fall upon the church if they should suffer his covenant and seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. The classic example of that, I find, in, in the whole of the Bible is what happened in Joshua 7. You remember, after the, um, the miraculous destruction of Jericho, when God broke the walls down by his mighty hand and that they destroyed Jericho, they were to level that city and they were not to take any of the riches, the gold, or any of the wealth. God forbade them to partake of any of that but somebody coveted and desired and secretly took some of it anyway. It, um, it wasn't known to the people of Israel, but when they went to fight against Ai, God caused the nation of Israel to suffer loss and defeat before Ai, before the people of Ai. Joshua went before the Lord and asked the Lord, why that was allowed to happen. It was then determined that there was wickedness in the camp, and it was discovered that Achan was a man who had stolen and coveted and secretly taken the riches and, and hid them under his tent. Well, what happened was then God um, then exposed Achan to them, um, and then that man was taken and he was destroyed, him and his entire family. And then God then allowed them to later then go and defeat Ai afterwards. But that's an example of wickedness in the camp or wickedness in the church causing the wrath of God to justly fall upon the church. I'll never forget one of the messages from Dr. Sid Dyer during seminary. And he preached on this particular text. 
It was one of the most memorable uh, chapel messages I ever had in all of my seminary. Section 4 says that church discipline is for the better attaining of these ends, again, of church discipline. The officers of the church are to proceed by admonition, suspension from the sacraments of the Lord's Supper for a season, and by excommunication from the church, according to the nature of the crime and demerit of the person. What this section in section 4 is saying is that there are different levels of church discipline. It would be highly unjust for the session to just turn around and say, um, so-and-so, you need to step in our office. All right? And then they, they step in the office. We're excommunicating you. You're not allowed to take the Lord's Supper, and you're, you're, no, you're no longer a part of this church. Well, what did I do? Well, <laughs> they're supposed to be what you call due process. You're supposed to start off with a warning, an admonition, something called a admonition here uh, in is mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 5. Um, let's, uh, let's turn there for this first step. First Thessalonians 5 says in verse 12, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. That word admonish there could be translated as warn, give a warning. Now here in this particular passage, it seems as though you could interpret it as the, the, the one who is responsible in giving the warning or giving the admonishment is the church leadership, namely the session, the elders of the church. But um, as those who are required to give a, an account before the Lord because in, it's mentioned in Hebrews uh, thirteen seventeen that elders and ministers are required to give an account before the Lord for how they shepherd the flock and how they watch over the souls of those under their authority. Therefore, you can see that God would hold them ultimately responsible as being the one that give the warnings to watch over and shepherd the flock. But Galatians uh, six and I have that written in your outline. Galatians six one through two says that giving words of warning and challenge is not just the duty of the session or even of a deacon, but it's the duty of each and every true Christian. Uh, it says there in Galatians six verses one and two, brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, not an elder, not necessarily a deacon or even a minister, but you who are spiritual. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Again, it's not just the elders that are to give such warnings, but if 
if our church ever excommunicates someone and we have no record of the session giving them warnings, we will probably be disciplined by the presbytery, this particular church, because our church would not be following the biblical order in giving people due process. You don't just kick people out of the church. You warn them, you pray with them, you talk to them, you seek to counsel them. And then if they don't repent, then you, you move on to the next step. The next step is suspension. That person will, you know, will be asked, until you, you stop committing this particular sin, we want you to no longer take the Lord's Supper. When we find out that you stop committing this particular sin, we, we want to welcome you back to take the Lord's Supper. But then if that doesn't work, if that second stage of suspension doesn't work, and then the person then gets excommunicated, that excommunication is a solemn declaration by the session of the church that they are no longer considered a true believer and they're outside the kingdom. Now, do we know for sure what's their eternal destiny? Now, only, the only one who knows that is God. But such a person is given over to Satan. However, someone even excommunicated, even, I don't care what, how heinous the sin is, Someone excommunicated should always be continued to be prayed for that he would be reclaimed, that he would repent and turn of his sin and come back in. Now, the difference between an excommunication and a suspension is that when someone is suspended, they're allowed to take the Lord's Supper again when the session gives them approval and it's, maybe an announcement would be made. But a person who's excommunicated, put out of the church, they would have to give a, a, go before the church and give a reaffirmation of their faith and before they would be allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper because they would be coming back in reclaimed as a person who was once excommunicated. Again, this whole process is one that is considered a true mark of a church. Jesus commands this sort of practice as what a church should be. And it's not gruesome. It is loving it is hard, it is a struggle, but it is something that God commands for us to do and that we should honor uh, because it comes from the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. We thank you for this, your holy word, and even these difficult, very challenging passages of scripture. We pray that you would help us to be those who contend, who struggle, who agonize even over the matters of the faith. Help us, we pray, to encourage one another. Help us, even those of us who are spiritual, to seek to restore others with a spirit of gentleness, looking to ourselves that we would not be tempted. Help us, we pray, as a body of believers, to, to lovingly carry one another's burdens and thereby fulfill your holy law, the law of Christ. Help us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit to grow in grace in our understanding and our practice as a church of these matters. For we pray it in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. For our closing hymn, we're going to turn to 16b, and we'll sing stanzas 1 through 3. Preserve me, O God, 16b.